Well, you probably feel as though you've already just stood for a whole theology lesson and you're trying to digest the oneness and the threeness of, uh, of the Godhead. Um, you can see why I didn't have a children's talk. It's a little bit complicated. And the parents are busy teaching them that one plus one equals two and one plus two equals three, and we dare not uh, add confusion. But there is one thing that I'd like to say about the, uh, the, the Athanasian Creed, actually two things, and then I, I will get to our sermon. First is that I'm nervous about the preface, which says that we have to believe everything in there or else we will eternally perish. Um, that needs to be kept in mind in light of the rest of Scripture that says that we are, um, we are, fa we are saved by faith alone, uh, by God's grace. And if you are a Trinitarian theologian and you want to be orthodox, you should pay attention to each line. But I think the rest of us can be allowed to be given a bit of space to read it and believe it and to leave the theologians to sort out the details. But it's a, it's a marvelous summary of, um, of the faith. The other thing, a quick Trinitarian lesson, is St. Augustine's seven statements. And if you know these seven statements, so I am told, you will be an Orthodox Trinitarian theologian. The first statement, uh, Jesus is God. You want to say that? Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, right? The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There is only one God. There is only one God. There you go. There's a, maybe you've seen on these stained glass windows sometimes in churches, there's a, what looks like a mag wheel with uh, God and the Son and the Spirit, and joining them is the is. God is, uh, the Father is Jesus, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, sorry, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and then um, each of them is not, is not the other. Anyway, that is um, the Trinity. But we're going to move from the Trinity back to where we have been in past weeks, and that is going through the Gospel of Matthew. For about the past two years, we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and today we come to what's often called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and gave a discourse, and it is about the end times, the future. So if you are wondering about how uh, the Bible fits into the newspaper headlines, uh, this is basically what Jesus has to say about it. And I have an outline of what I want to say on page six. There are two handouts, uh, one that has a translation of the text with notes, and then the other has my notes. And you'll be glad to know that I won't read them, but I will be following uh, the, um, the outline. So for uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series, courtesy of Jesus's speech on the Mount of Olives, on preparing for the return of Christ. Christian faith affirms, uh, matter-of-factly and factually that Jesus Christ will return to earth in bodily form the same way that he ascended to earth and that we commemorated a few weeks ago. And so at the beginning of this series on preparing for the return of Christ, we're looking at the first 28 verses of Matthew chapter 24, in which Jesus gives us seven signs of his return, seven signs of the end times. And this has been an interesting week for me because we're delving into uh, things that pertain to the future, about which there's a good deal of controversy. 
So I want to summarize things by reminding you of something that you've probably seen on a friend's wall or maybe on a flight bag or maybe on somebody's t-shirt. And it was a slogan that was invented in World War II, actually just prior to World War II, by the Ministry of Defense in Britain. And it was a saying that said, keep calm and carry on. And it has the royal crown above it. Keep calm and carry on. If you were to summarize Matthew chapter 24 and everything that we're going to talk about today, it would be something like that. Things are going to happen in the future. Many of them are troubling. Some of them are downright horrifying. But in good British Christian fashion, keep calm and carry on. That slogan uh, was invented in 1939, somewhere between the end of uh, June and the beginning of July. And uh, it has meant to a, a great deal to people um, for a long time, but more on that at the end. So uh, that's the basic message. And now we want to look at the seven signals of the end times. But before we do that, let's set the scene. We learn in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus has just left the temple. He's been at the temple teaching for a long time. But now when it says, and Jesus exiting from the temple, we're to think of something kind of ominous. It's like the departure of the glory of God from the temple in the time of Solomon, before it was destroyed. Because this temple, the temple in Jesus' day, which was in Jerusalem, was soon going to be destroyed. And it was going to be destroyed in judgment. So when it says Jesus exiting from the temple was going along, it's not just telling us about Jesus' travels, but it's reminding us that Jesus is about to judge the kingdom of Israel as God judged the kingdom of Israel when he destroyed the first temple. And so Jesus is exiting from the temple, and then his disciples come. It says that twice. I love it. It says it in verse 1, and then it says it in verse 3. The disciples come to him. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come to Jesus. But the contrast in the first instance is amazing. Here, Jesus is coming out of the temple, making this heavy theological statement about him departing from the temple. And the disciples come, and they want to point out the sites. They want to show him the temple. Jesus doesn't really need to be shown the temple, but there they are. We disciples are simple people who are fixated on the menial things. And actually, this was quite a spectacle, because as Jesus was making his way up the Mount of Olives, he would have been walking up a mountain slope with this amazing view of the temple complex across the valley. And the Herod's temple was one of the wonders of the world, and it still is a phenomenal wonder. In fact, to this very day, you can see the footprint of Herod, who's uh, supervised the construction of the temple, uh, pretty much um, everywhere. There are stones under the temple complex that are the size of a boxcar. And you just can't imagine how a crane today could have moved those stones to where they are. And there was gold over the temple. It was this massive complex that was absolutely splendiferous. Um, the, the closest thing that you might come to it today would be something like the Golden Temple in Japan to which people flock, but it pales by comparison because of its size. And so the disciples are enjoying time with Jesus, and they want to point out, Jesus, aren't those, isn't that building this lovely that we're looking at? And Jesus, being the theologian that he is, turns it into a lesson. And he says something which is going to surprise them. He says to them, and it's odd, notice the phraseology, do you not see all these things? 
I say to you with certainty, absolutely no stone will be left here, one upon the other, that will not be dislodged. There's a negative tone to it, and there's kind of a double redundancy in verse 2, where Jesus seems to say almost twice that no stone will be left on another. Well, this is something that is staggering. It's just uh, something that would be almost impossible to imagine. And archaeologists have, in fact, discovered in the city of Jerusalem a place that is quite famous near the corner of the Temple Mount where you can see these big stones that have come crashing down after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Jesus is saying, guys, it's a nice picture, but guess what? A few years from now, the whole thing is going to come crashing down. Now, that has an awesome tone to it that ought to speak to us of God's judgment. But for those of us who are Christians, we're reminded that Jesus, in destroying one temple, was preparing to build another. And he built it through the destruction of himself, who when he was crucified and then was resurrected, he became the locus. He became the place where people rally around, and he became the new temple. So amid the sad news of talking about the destruction of the temple in Jesus' time, we can take comfort by knowing that he was willing to allow his own body, the temple, to be destroyed, and then on the third day, he would build it again, and it's still there. And the presence of God is with us to this very day. But in the midst of Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, he comes to these seven signals, and they come to us by way of the disciples asking a few questions. After Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, the disciples ask him two questions in private. Let me kind of think about that. That's, that's pretty scary, Jesus. And they want to know when. They want to know when this is going to happen, and they want to know what. So the when pertains to when will the temple be destroyed, and here Jesus makes an actual predictive prophecy that was fulfilled beyond question. And then the second part of their question, I've underlined it in your handout, I believe, in verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming, of your returning again, and of the end of the age? And that's Jesus' cue to give us seven signals. And so we have before us Jesus' sermon on the signs of troubled times before his return. And it comes in two kind of paragraphs. Verses 4 to 14 speak quite generally about end times. And then in verses 15 to uh, 28, there's a lot of detail about Jerusalem and about what's going to happen in the temple and about where people are going to go in Judea. But this is all a prophecy. But let me preface what I'm going to say by giving us a little tip on prophecy. Old Testament prophecies were often based on something that had happened before. And this is a pattern in prophecy. So what I'm saying is, is that when we come to this passage, Jesus is going to be talking on two levels. He's going to be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is an historical instance that's about to happen. But at the same time, he's also talking about some period in the future. And this is a way in which prophets prophesy. Uh, we're not entirely clear why. I think it's because they see certain cycles in the program of God. So let me give you an example of that, and it's in the footnote on page 6. One scholar reminds us of this pattern in the Old Testament, and he says, In Amos, the day of the Lord is both an historical and an eschatological event. That's a future event. So there was a day of the Lord that happened historically, and yet which pointed to the future. Isaiah describes the historical day of the visitation on Babylon as though it was 
the future day of the Lord. Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord as an historical disaster at the hands of an unnamed foe. But he also describes it in terms of a worldwide catastrophe in which all creatures are swept off the face of the earth so that nothing remains. You know, when you look out uh, the window um, of an old building, uh, like the building in which we are, um, you see the trees over there, don't you? But you don't see the trees independently of the stained glass window and of those two emblems, one of which pertains to Wycliffe College, Vermini, Verbum Domini Manet. And so when you look out the window, you can't see the stuff in the far horizon without also seeing the stuff in the near horizon. And so in this prophecy, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's talking in the near sphere about the destruction of the temple, but at the same time, he's also talking about something that's going to happen in the future. So we need to read this text on two different levels. And that's what makes it tricky, and that's what makes us humble in our understanding of the nature of this prophecy. So in response, Jesus begins with seven signs. And I've come up with an, an acronym to help us understand what these seven signs are. And the acronym is DUPE ADT. Uh, ADT is an alarm company, and it's um, the American District Telegraph Company. And you might see on somebody's front lawn a little sign that says ADT, and you know that the place has got an alarm on it. And the word dupe is, I think, a word for um, kind of, um, I don't know, how would you define dupe? Um, pardon? Deceive, sure, yeah. It's kind of like a funny puzzle about it. So dupe ADT. Those are seven things. D-U-P-E-A-D-T. Yes, I just lost my composure for a minute, forgetting what the word dupe meant, meant, or at least forgetting how to explain it. So we have seven signals, and five of them are shadowy, and two of them are clear. And my point is this, and it's Jesus's point, I believe. You can test it against a Matthew yourself. There are certain things that are going to happen that are portents of the end time. But two of these have a special kind of a significance to them and are capital S signs. And so I put them in bold on your handout, the abominable showman and the coming of the son of man. But let's look at each one in turn. First of all, we want to look at four that come from Jesus's general portrait about the end times. And there comes not only signals about the future, but also lessons. So as we go through these items, I want us to recall and think about watching for these things. And the first is deception. Jesus talks about false messiahs and prophets deceiving us. See to it, he says in verse 4, that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. This happens again in verse uh, 11. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And then Jesus actually returns to it, and it's the second D in our acronym of the ADT in verses 23 and 24. We'll look at it now, and that will spare us looking at it later. Verse 23 and 24. If anyone says to you, look, the Christ is here, or there he is, do not believe. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and provide miraculous attestations and marvels so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Look, 
I've told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or there in the inner rooms, do not believe. Well, it so happened that in the time of the earlier church, there were prophets who were wanting to get people's attention. There were magicians. There were people who were trying to imitate Jesus and to try and do his uh, magic, as it were, by invoking his name. Uh, but there weren't all that many before the second century AD when we know that there were certain Jewish figures who claimed to be the Messiah. And to this day, to this day, Orthodox Jews still are looking for the Messiah and their ears are always attuned for when the Messiah might appear. But you know, in those days, looking for the Messiah was kind of the only show in town in a Jewish context. And in our context, I wonder if it's possible to expand this beyond looking for a Messiah to charismatic figures, or even things that are capture our spiritual and our, our mental and our psychological attention. I say this with some hesitancy and simply throw it out there, not in any kind of an authoritarian sense, but I wonder if the likes of David Dawkins or Hollywood or a young Christian I knew who had this obsession with Taylor Swift, just kind of, just these people are out there and they want they want to rival jesus they want to rival our christian commitment and jesus says don't be deceived there's fancy stuff out there there are hype hype people and heroes out there but don't pay attention to them jesus himself is the real mccoy more dazzling things will come perhaps but jesus is the real deal keep calm and carry on the second involves not the D, but the U, upheavals. And in verses six to eight, we read about wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus talks about how there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be nation rising up against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places all around the world. And I wonder if you have thought yourself as a Christian or whether you have heard of another Christian wondering if what's going on in our world today is one of those signs of the end. You know, there's a war in Ukraine. Uh, there have been wars in other parts of the world. Doesn't it? Doesn't Jesus say that at the end of time there will be wars and rumors of wars? Maybe this is the end. And the answer is, maybe. But of course, there have been wars all through time. And these are shadowy portents. And the more important thing is not to fixate on whether the Ukraine war is the beginning of the end. But the important thing is not to be misled and not to get carried away, but to keep your cool. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Conscious, thoughtful of the future, but don't run off uh, on a bandwagon and start selling everything and, and carrying signs that announcing that the world is about to come to an end because of one war or another. Jesus says in verse eight, these are merely the beginnings of the birth pangs. This is Jesus's way, I think, and the prophet's way of saying that God is in control of everything. And the analogy is at birth. So as some of you know much better than I do from recent history, those of you who are young mothers, before that wonderful baby boy comes along, there's an awful lot of screaming and anguish. And so before the new world comes, Jesus says that there will be times of birth pangs. There will be labor pains. All of nature is in travail, awaiting the renewal of creation. So we have dupe ADT and we are done D and U. The third is persecution. Persecution from without and animosity from within in verses nine to 13. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. 
don't be alarmed. They will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill many of you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then many will be tripped up and will betray one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most people will grow cold. But the one who endures to finality is he who will be saved. In one sense, it's this. <clears throat> Situation normal for the Christian life. Unless you happen to live in the West. Um, daily life for many Christians is a life of persecution. It's a life of being the odd person out. It's a life where you end up at the short end of the stick because you're not part of the majority, whether the majority be the Muslims or some other religious group. In our day, we're finding ourselves to be the minority in the midst of um, what some people would call secular humanists. At any rate, the point is this. Strife and tribulation are situation normal. But we're also told under the heading of the Great Tribulation, which follows item number five, the abominable showman and his horrifying carnage, that one day there will come a tribulation that is in a category all by itself. And we won't know until it happens. But when it happens, we'll know. So situation normal, that's probably what we're experiencing today. Keep calm and carry on. But watch for a time when things just go right off the wall because we're told that there will come a time of great tribulation, the likes of which we've never seen before. And that is accompanied by the appearance of this fellow called the abominable showman. Did you catch that little? I thought that was quite clever. You know, the abominable snowman, it's not a typo. It's the abominable showman. Well, there's good news after the bad news of persecution for which the advice is to endure, and that is world evangelization. In verse 14, we're told that one of the portents of the end is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole known world as a testimony for all nations. And then the end will come. We're told one of the reasons why Jesus is not returning to judge the world is because he's worried about those who haven't heard the message of Jesus yet. And so if you're frustrated uh, in waiting for Jesus to return, probably one of the things you could do, uh, humanly speaking, to bring that along would be to share your faith. Uh, go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. Some people see this as having been fulfilled in the time of Paul, uh, where the gospel was spread to pretty well the whole known world. But on that two-layer level, there are still parts of the world where people haven't heard the message. And it might just be that Jesus is waiting until everyone has had a chance to hear before he returns. So there's good news in the mix of bad news. Now comes the second part, verses 15 to 28, when things get a little more specific. As you look through that window, you see more on the near horizon than the far horizon. But the message is the same. Jesus is describing things that are going to happen roughly 35 years from the time of, uh, of his living, that actually were historical events, but these were uh, kind of a, a prefiguring or a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen in the future. And with the fifth item mentioned in verse 15 comes the first real sign, the first sure sign that the end is coming. And that is the appearance of a figure called the abomination of desolation. Now, the background to the abomination of desolation lies in history, which isn't surprising given what I've said about the two-layered perspective. The abomination of desolation was prophesied in the book of Daniel, and it was fulfilled in the 2nd century BC 
when a pagan ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes came and he desecrated the Jerusalem temple. Um, he made an offering to uh, Zeus, and um, there was um, word of a pig having been slaughtered. And this was just um, for the Jewish mindset, and for our mindset as, as well, is, is God's holy place is defiled by those things which are the exact opposite of what God has ordained. And so this abomination of desolation that happened a few hundred years before Christ, Jesus predicted what happened again with the next temple, the one that was destroyed in 70 AD. And sure enough, in about 70 AD, the emperor Titus came and destroyed the temple. And we're not sure what he did, whether um, he just went in and, uh, and, and became sort of an abomination of desolation by himself, whether he set up a statue of himself, whether it was just himself. There's a list of explanations in the notes about what the abomination of desolation can be. But the point is that it happened. And this was kind of one of those big moments. And most readers of this passage understand this to probably happen again at some point in the future. So we need to watch for the abominable showman, an evil person who's going to desecrate the temple. Well, wait a minute. There is no temple. Some people believe that the temple will be rebuilt. There are a group of Jews who are hankering to have the temple rebuilt uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, and that may not happen. Um, if it were to happen in the near future, it would clearly um, lead to a lot of conflict and warfare. But the temple today is the body of Christ. So there may come a great abominable enemy who will wreak havoc among God's people. And if and when that happens, that will be a sign, a sure sign that we are near the end of things. I can imagine this being somebody who would be a blasphemer, somebody who would lead people astray, somebody who would cause Christians just to kind of scatter like we read in this description here where they flee to the mountains. And Jesus' advice is, when that happens, take cover, get out of there. It's going to be bad news. So that's the description of the abomination of desolation and the horrifying carnage that comes with it. And with that horrifying carnage, there is a great tribulation. We're told uh, that it will be a great tribulation, the like of which has not been seen since the beginning of the world until now, and has, and will, nor ever will be. And God in his mercy has cut those days short so that we will survive. That is the elect. And then... When we come to the sixth of the seventh part, it is again a return to warning about deception. Watch out for people who want to catch your attention and lead you away from Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Then comes the coming of the Son of Man in verse 27. And here's the good news. You can't miss it. For just as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, you know, you see the flash, you hear the sound, you know that there's a thunderstorm. Um, when you see a dead corpse uh, in, a, in a desert area, you know that birds are going to be hovering and pecking at it before long. The one follows the other. So we kind of get this, this, uh, this light show and this, this, um, this grim picture of vultures over a, a corpse as a reminder that when Jesus does return, it will be unmistakable, but it will be a time when it's too late for any of us to change our position on Jesus, which is why today we need to be sure that we're in a right relationship with Jesus. And we're in that right relationship with Jesus by putting our trust in him, 
not in our own good works, not in our church membership, not in our baptismal certificate or anything else. But the question is, right now, are you relying on Jesus and his work on the cross alone to be your way of pleasing God? Because when he looks at you, he'll see a sinner unless you have claimed the cross and the death of Jesus and you have applied his death to your own life and said, I have been, to use the old expression, washed in the blood. There's also a time of lawlessness that is worth taking a look at, but I won't elaborate upon it. But I just want to invite, encourage you to go back and look, because there will be a time of compromise when Christians will hate each other as a result of the persecution, and we will be divided. And one of the things that we will do is we'll let go of the laws of God. We will become lawless people. Um, and that's a danger, those of us who live in the period of grace. The only thing worse than a legalist is somebody who doesn't believe that there are any divine imperatives upon us nowadays that we need to continue to abide by. We're not saved by them, but we're held by them. And that's a clear teaching of Matthew. Keep calm and carry on. It was invented in 1939, but do you know what? It never saw the light of day. By 1940, there was a paper shortage. And all of those posters, 2.4 million posters saying, keep calm and carry on, were destroyed. And it wasn't until around 2000, when someone in a bookstore in Northumberland saw that sign and thought it was kind of cute and thought that it had a worthy signal. And since 2000, and only since then, has that poster become something that is part of our current culture. I wonder, dear friends, if we have given up being attentive to the return of Christ, and whether we have grown slack and not taken it seriously. It's my prayer that as with that sign that you see so frequently, keep calm and carry on, that it might be revived in our own hearts and that we might watch for the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And I think if Jesus were writing that slogan, he would probably affirm and acknowledge, yes, keep calm and carry on, but he would say more aptly, watch and pray. Amen.